Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. Today, we talk with Jake Hoshart, who is the Knobloch Assistant Professor of Conservation Economics and the University of Wyoming's Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources. We're going to talk with Jake about a recent paper he published that looks at the impacts of hurricanes on birth outcomes. Stay with us. Jake, hello and welcome to Resources Radio. It's nice to have you here. Thank you for having me, Margaret. It's great to be here. So we like to start our episodes by asking our guests a little bit about how they got into their field of study and research, sort of what inspired you, what motivated you. So can you tell us a little bit about your own journey to being a natural resource economist? Yeah, so I guess it started in undergrad. I was a student at Gettysburg College where I was studying economics and environmental studies. And my other activity at Gettysburg was I was a guide for mountaineering, uh, rock climbing, sea kayaking. I worked for the outdoor program there. And that was my true passion. Then the degrees were just kind of something I had to accomplish along the way. And I guess my third year in college, we went out to Colorado for a mountaineering training trip to learn how to be a better guide, learn some technical skills. And for me, that was my first time ever going to the west of the Mississippi, which was a really transformative experience. So truth be told, I really went to the University of Wyoming to study environmental economics because it was the bridge of what I was already studying. And there were amazing mountains in the distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us who are in the environmental field have these sorts of stories in our background. Yeah, it's definitely a, a decision I don't regret. And I think the first probably year or two of my training as a graduate student, I was in a little over my head, kind of drinking from a fire hose, but I really did begin to love the work uh, probably my third or fourth year and certainly as my career took off. Yeah, that's great. Super interesting. So you recently published an article, Jake, that I want to talk about. This is in the journal Nature Communications. It's co-authored with Yuan Hao Li and Nino Abishidze. And it's entitled Associations of Hurricane Exposure and Forecasting with Impaired Birth Outcomes. So I really like this paper. I like all your work, Jake, but I really wanted to have you on to take a deep dive into it. Um, We're going to talk about the data and the methods and the key findings, and then I'm going to make you kind of broaden and talk about some policy implications of the work and uh, research on hurricane impacts more broadly. But first, let's get started with sort of a general description of what you set out to look at in the study. What was your sort of overarching research question? Yeah, so the study was inspired um, by my first job placement at East Carolina University, a frequent recipient of hurricanes. And the academic research on this topic, um, it's it's been a question of interest for a long time. Economists have always been fascinated with the impacts of disasters on vulnerable populations and what can we do about it. So the overarching question here was, you know, what effect do tropical storms, which we use interchangeably with hurricanes, have on pregnant women who experience impacts during their pregnancy? Um, and not only on the women themselves, but also on the unborn child. Yeah. So why is the looking at this particular question important to analyze? Um, I think there's some research, maybe you could tell us about this, that's investigated kind of this connection between various birth outcomes, such as low birth weight or premature births, and then later in life, 
health and economic outcomes. So maybe did that motivate you? Can you tell us a little bit about about that area of work? Yeah, certainly. So that's definitely the backdrop of this work is this idea of, of the fetal origins hypothesis, which goes back really to the early 1990s is when it kind of caught fire and became a really um, well-studied hypothesis. And the hypothesis goes that the first nine months of development might actually be more important than the home and the conditions that you're born into for determining your later life outcomes. So since the early 90s, there's been a ton of research looking at how birth outcomes, things like preterm births, low birth weights, very low birth weight outcomes, influence later life outcomes, both medically and socially. So there's robust evidence showing that if you do have one of these impaired births, there's increased likelihood that you might develop attention deficit disorder, uh, increased blood pressure, higher rates of breast cancer, psychiatric disorders. Um, there's evidence that you have lower IQ and a lot of other medical outcomes. In addition, um, there's been well-documented social outcomes associated with these initial birth conditions. So we find that folks with lower birth weights end up being less likely to form romantic partnerships, are likely to be more neurotic, are likely to have lower employment rates, lower educational attainment, lower lifetime earnings. So it really is a, a, an important kind of conditioning factor for uh, you know, the next 60, potentially 70, 80 years of your life um, that's determined by uh, in utero development conditions. So where we become interested in is what type of social impacts or natural disasters might affect those development conditions such that um, you can have really drastic consequences later on. Yeah, that's super interesting. I did not know there was such a robust literature on that topic on so many different outcomes. That's interesting. Um, but it seems like measuring the effect of hurricanes or tropical storms, as you say, on any kind of health outcome can be difficult to do sort of statistically coming up with the, the methods and the data. So tell us about the data and the methods that you use, in particular, how you're able to kind of connect exposure to the hurricane you looked at and the birth outcomes you're measuring. Yeah, so we're not the first to do this. Um, there have been other authors that have focused on the impacts of tropical storm events on birth outcomes. And I would even say at this point, it's a pretty well accepted finding that these tropical storms are going to have adverse consequences on births. And the, the, the approach to documenting that um, generally relies on vital statistics data. So looking at birth outcomes data, which are often recorded by a Department of Health and Human Service with whatever state you're in, uh, and you can often retrieve those data. So what we did is in North Carolina, we retrieved those data um, going back probably about 20 years or so. And once you have those data, it's important to then figure out where these women lived, not only when they gave birth, but also when, they, um, when the birth was conceived. So we get residential addresses, we clean up those residential addresses, and we turn them into points on maps. And then once we have the points on maps, in addition to the conception dates, uh, in addition to the birth uh, dates, you're then able to link that up to the storm's physical effects. So here we work closely with atmospheric scientists who do a really good job at predicting the rainfall that occurred after a storm event. And in our particular paper, we're focusing on Hurricane Irene, which was really a devastating storm for the state of North Carolina. Yeah, that's cool. So tell us, uh, what did you find? What are some of the key findings you, that, you, that you got in the paper? Well, I guess the, the initial finding is that we are able to replicate what others have shown in the past, and that's that tropical storms are pretty devastating for these vulnerable populations. 
Indeed, we see lower birth weights. We see higher incidences of preterm births. We see uh, higher incidences of, of low birth weight outcomes and very low birth weight outcomes. Uh, and really, this is not terribly surprising. The question that we found interesting, though, and I guess the observation that we found interesting, was that all of these birth outcomes and these birth impairments, if you will, they were experienced clear across the state in both places that were struck directly by the storm. So they experienced 17 or 18 inches of rainfall, hurricane force winds, but also in places inland that didn't necessarily experience the same physical exposures, they also suffered these birth impairments. So that made us interested uh, and caused us to go a little bit deeper beyond just a cause and effect analysis of what was the impacts of the storm on birth outcomes. The reason we went deeper is because if you think about, I guess, the prior work that's been done in this area, I would say up until about 2016 or 2018, the literature had kind of chalked this up to being a story of, we know natural disasters are bad. We know that this vulnerable population suffers, um, but there's really not much we can do about it because these storm events are big, broad events, and you really can't stop a tropical storm. So here, now that we have evidence that these, these birth impairments are happening all over the state, not necessarily linked just to the physical impacts of the storm, we began searching for a mechanism. You know, what was the underlying cause of these observed birth impacts? Prevailing intuition, prevailing thought was that these are stressful events and that stress has a direct impact on in utero development and there's really not much we can do there. Um, but we were fortunate to have access to a lot of different data sets. So we started to explore alternative hypotheses. One was, is there water contamination or stir up of environmental toxins that might be making their way into drinking water systems that could disrupt in utero development? And we do that by looking at private well samples that were taken uh, across the state before and after these storm events. And we analyzed those in the same way that we analyzed the impacts of these storms on pregnant women, and we actually don't find any results. So it seems unlikely to us that uh, water contamination is the driving result. We also look at other conditions like socioeconomic factors, um, the likelihood that certain populations have better healthcare services than other populations, and that doesn't seem to be driving the results either. Now, the final factor that we looked at was prenatal care. And there's a well-documented relationship between the amount of prenatal care um, that's received and access to prenatal care and the health of birth outcomes. And what we found here is that the impact on prenatal care mirrored almost identically and across the entire state, the impact on birth outcomes that we see. That's interesting. And one question that comes to mind for me with that is, you know, it's a temporary event. So how disruptive, you know, can, can it be in terms of, I assume you mean things like missing doctor's appointments or other kinds of appointments that you might have uh, while you're pregnant. And so did you find that, you know, it's a big enough impact to disrupt those kinds of things? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and we see impacts on two different margins. So the first impact we see is, Prenatal care begins later during the pregnancy when women are exposed to these hurricane events. So this would suggest that there's a delay in initiating um, care early on. 
In addition, we see that the total number of prenatal care appointments throughout the pregnancy also decreases. So not only do you start later, but you generally don't make up those lost care appointments. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And the magnitudes of these kind of effects that you estimated in the paper, Jake, um, can you put those into any kind of context, sort of how big is big sort of a question? Yeah. Yeah. So for the prenatal care effects, um, generally we see uh, women losing about one prenatal care appointment throughout uh, their gestation period, throughout their pregnancy. And what's interesting about that is it's not just in the places that ended up being exposed to the storm. So not just in the places that were kind of along the eastern seaboard, experienced hurricane winds, but also inland. So those places that anticipated exposures. Uh, As it relates to the birth outcomes that we observe, they're very consistent with other natural disasters uh, and other stressful events that we see in the literature. So it's long been known that um, things like domestic assault during a pregnancy will impair birth outcomes in the same way. Things like family ruptures or losing a loved one during your pregnancy in an unexpected way will impact birth outcomes. Um, Stress from local terrorist attacks uh, has the same impact on birth outcomes. So we're in the same ballpark in terms of magnitude. The difference between those events and this one, and something that I find particularly interesting, is this is driven by information that is really sent out there to the masses to protect us. But instead, there's this population that's using that information. um, And it's not that the information is incorrect. It's just that when the information is distributed, it's fairly uncertain. And when that occurs, uh, households, we suspect, are responding by canceling those appointments, kind of better safe than sorry. Um, And the impacts of that um, can be quite devastating. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. So... Let's take it to the next step then. Do you think these findings have some implications for policy or programs? And what do you think, what are they? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing that's different about our work, or at least distinguishes it from previous contributions in this area, is because we're able to start to identify the mechanism that underlies this relationship between tropical storm events and birth outcomes, we can start to develop targeted policies. And there's two ways to think about this. And the first is certainly we need more research around when we should be releasing forecasts. From our work, we cannot conclude that we should be delaying these forecasts. We should be waiting until they're more certain to disseminate that information because we really don't know how households would respond to kind of a state of ambiguity or you know, a hurricane that's charging up the eastern seaboard. We know it's coming, but the National Hurricane Center won't tell us where and when. I think that that state could actually be more stressful um, than just being in this cone of uncertainty and expecting exposure. So we can't make that claim. Um, but we certainly think that more research needs to be done looking at kind of the optimal release of when these forecasts can do the most good, both in preparing people and also making sure that we don't cause unnecessary worry. Now, the second, which I think is uh, low-hanging fruit and really a direct um, outcome of the work that we've done, is now that we recognize that this stress and this anticipation could be disrupting healthcare services, I do think there's an opportunity to work with groups like the American Medical Association, um, healthcare clinics, 
and establishing kind of best practice standards. You know, we don't know who's canceling these appointments. We don't know if it's the household or the woman canceling this appointment. We don't know if it's the uh, clinician canceling this appointment as they prepare for the storm event. Um, but we could certainly create best practice standards for, you know, waiting until there's a certain level of certainty in the forecast before those cancellations are made to make sure that we're not um, overly eager to cancel these appointments that we know are not later made up. Right. That's a good point. I notice that a lot of times the, the governor of a, of a state that's getting ready to have a hurricane hit will kind of lock things down. So I assume offices will close. I've known of situations where offices will close because of that. So I think that's a really good point, Margaret. And, you know, I, I think generally in society, especially when we're talking about disasters and the protection of the public, we tend to take a very precautionary approach, right? This this better safe than sorry idea uh, is pretty prevalent. And as it relates to tropical storms, you know, until I think early 2000s, maybe around 2001 or 2002, we used to release this kind of cone of uncertainty um, forecast, which I think a lot of folks have seen on, on television as a tropical storm approaches, the likelihood of where the eye of the storm might end up. Um, we used to release those about three days out. Now, over time, we, we started releasing them five days out. So although our forecasts are getting better, it's also the case that when you release those forecasts earlier, there's just inherently more uncertainty. So those are the types of, of kind of precautionary uh, policies that may have unintended consequences that we haven't prior been able to fully grasp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super interesting. So... <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to go even broader now, Jake. Um, we expect hurricanes are going to get worse with climate change, uh, especially the worst storms, I think, are predicted to become more frequent. Sea level rise is going to exacerbate storm surge flooding associated with hurricanes and just even normal tidal flooding for that matter. So in thinking about how to address these problems and help people that are living in the riskiest areas, there's kind of this growing chorus of people saying that in this space, in this policy space, we focus a little bit too much on sort of property values. So when we're making investments in hazard mitigation or allocating disaster aid, maintaining stormwater infrastructure, making all those kinds of decisions that are often driven by flood damages avoided, which are higher for higher valued properties, um, we have this this issue where we're, we seem to be focused on property, not People. So one of the things about your study that I like, and you said there's others out there that have looked at this too, but that could be really important is this impact on a, on a health outcome, in particular, these birth outcomes. So I just wanted to ask you to kind of think about a broader policy question, this issue about um, what we're really focusing on when we're thinking about disaster policy um, and how research can help inform it. Like what kind of research would you like to see more of? Do you have thoughts about these issues in the policy world and how we might do things better? Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're spot on. You know, the majority of the work in this area does focus on, I'll say, kind of built infrastructure, our houses, our our hospitals, our schools. Um, and I think part of the reason is, in certainly military bases, and I think part of the reason is, um, that's the low-hanging fruit historically, and it's also very important. But it's also relatively easy to value and assess the impacts in a monetary way. However, I know you had Eli Fanchel on um, not long ago. We, you know, when we think about kind of sustainability planning, you know, built infrastructure 
is a really important piece of the social value of society, but there's also other, I guess we'd call them stocks of capital and economics, things like human capital, our intelligence, our, our people, natural capital, like our, our big fluffy beaches that draw tourism. And the impacts on these types of resources are also really important. When it comes to human capital, and I think that's where I would nest this type of work where we're looking at not just the impact on a vulnerable population, but also really the intergenerational uh, transfer of that impact in, in terms of um, determining future aptitude of the next generation, we do start to think about our, our productivity as a society uh, in a much more pointed way, which is why I'm really interested in it. And I think in terms of future research, there's a lot of lessons to be learned about how we've analyzed you know, housing prices and public investments into uh, adaptation projects like seawalls and levees and how that work played out and then mapping that on to this more nuanced uh, human capital research. So, you know, one one case that comes to mind immediately, I was just reading an article about the city of Norfolk, which is embarking on a $1.8 billion uh, expansion of their existing seawall. And one thing we've learned about these these public investments is they're often targeted at specific communities and often funded locally. And sometimes the communities that can fund them tend to have more means than the neighboring communities that don't have a coastal adaptation war chest ready to build such an expensive seawall. And in some cases, we do see that storm surge water can smash into those seawalls and then get deflected into neighboring communities that have lower income or maybe less resilient and usually minority populations. So in the same way, as we think about coastal adaptation for built infrastructure, I think we can think about that in terms of human capital. You know, the number one question I get with this study is, well, what do people do? You know, how do high income populations respond to those forecasts compared to low income populations? So we spent a lot of time talking with women who were pregnant during Hurricane Matthew when I was at East Carolina and higher income folks tend to take a vacation to, you know, Asheville, North Carolina. They tend to go on vacation, whereas uh, lower income populations don't have that luxury, can't afford it, can't get time off from work. Um, so I think figuring out ways to support the most vulnerable populations is really where this this future research should be directed. Yeah, that's a good point about the opportunities that people have to sort of escape. Um, I've witnessed that myself. Well, Jake, it's been great talking to you about this work, and I'm going to encourage everybody to read your paper. We'll put a link to it. But we usually like to end our podcast with a little more personal uh, touch, and that is to ask you or you know, it doesn't have to be personal, but to ask you sort of what's at the top of your stack. And that can be something you might be reading right now or something you you're really taken with. Maybe it was even a movie or a, a podcast for that matter. Um, so tell us a little bit about what's at the top of your stack right now. Yeah. Yeah. So a paper I just started reading, which really is fresh off the press and, and maybe not even on the press yet. It's It's a working paper, but it is publicly available is by uh, Renato Molina, who's at the University of Miami, and Ivan Rudick, who's at Cornell. And they examine a really similar question to what we've studied, except in a very different way, which I find really intriguing. And the title of that paper is The Social Value of Predicting Hurricanes. And their approach is really kind of disaggregating the error that's built into historical forecasts around hurricanes, and then examining how public expenditures 
um, both before the hurricane arrives and also um, after the hurricane has come through a community relate to the the initial accuracy of that forecast. So that approach is really desirable for a few reasons. One, because it's generalizable well beyond North Carolina. It's generalizable for many storms. And it also has a really direct link to investing and at least analyzing the benefits of these forecasting systems. And over time, these forecasts are getting much better. And I think our work certainly shows that a good forecast can really have tremendous social benefits, even those that escape kind of monetary metrics. Um, but Ivan and Renato's work show that this increased forecasts can also, you know, more than pay for, for the extra research and development and effort that goes into building these atmospheric science models and leveraging them for early warning systems. So I do think that that type of work moving forward is really important, figuring out how we can assess the value of these public warning systems in a rigorous way and making sure that public investments are made uh, to support those types of efforts. Oh, that's great. I'll be on the lookout for that paper and know both of those guys. So I'm sure it's interesting. All right, Jake, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you here. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Margaret. I really enjoyed being here. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.